We are um, we're continuing on in Philippians now with a what we were doing at a bit of a, a slow uh, slow motion kind of walk. We are now going to do it a fast sprint actually through this next section. This is the time in the letter when Paul says when the obvious question is what's going on with you, Paul? Um, he spent the first eleven verses giving an introduction, basically thanking. God for the for the Philippians and actually sharing his heart. We talked last week about this prayer in verses nine through eleven about Paul sharing his heart with this this church that he founded probably twelve years earlier, and uh, we got a glimpse into his heart in that way. But now we end up seeing Paul give us a glimpse into his heart in a different kind of way as he goes into this section of reporting out to the Philippians what's going on in his life. We see a little bit about his motivations, about his ambitions, about his desires. Um, for his own life and how he understands himself, how he understands this call that God has put on his life to be a new creature in Christ Jesus. So this is what we see before us in this text. I want to say by way of introduction that we'll see very clearly from this text that, that the Christian faith is not just something that we slap onto our lives as an addendum at the end, that we decide to make our life in a certain way and do our life in a certain way, and we happen to bring Jesus along for a ride in the back seat but that it's something that actually reforms us from the very core, from the center, and that works itself out in every aspect of who we are. There's this central change in Christ that changes everything about us, changes everything about us. And that's what we see in Paul's report. His report isn't really that encouraging, if you want to think about it just in kind of vernacular terms. He says, he gives this first report in verses 12 through 18 and says, yes, I'm in prison, and that's not really great. And, well, he doesn't say that, but, but I mean, obviously, circumstantially, nobody really probably is thrilled about being in prison. And not only am I in prison, but people who call themselves Christians and who he doesn't give us any indication in this text that they're not, his brothers and sisters in Christ are trying to stir up trouble for him. So maybe you've been there before. You've got a, a, a friend or, a, or maybe not a friend, uh, a brother in, or sister in Jesus that's caused you trouble before. That's what Paul is saying is going on in his life. He says, I'm in prison. Uh, I'm, I'm in the height of the empire here in Rome and in the, the center of secular power, and I'm under captivity. And by the way, my life also has this added dimension of my friends trying to make my life even more difficult. That's, his, that's sort of what he's swimming in at the moment. But obviously his letter doesn't sound like what I've just described in many ways. He says in verse, uh, in verse 18... What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Here's this theme that begins to kind of take heart of, of the letter of Philippians that Paul says, you know, this may be my circumstance from the world's perspective, but, but in this circumstance, the big point for Paul is that, that Christ's name is going forward. And not only is it going forward to to, to everybody that, that he sort of goes along and sees in, in the Greco-Roman world as he takes these journeys. But now, by God's providence, it's going forward in the heart of the power of Rome. And all the Praetorian Guard, all the, the Imperial Guard, these soldiers that, that, are, that are at the height of the Roman power in the capital city are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's going forward, he says. So in verse 12, what has really happened to me 
you might expect him to start saying, well, you know, yeah, it's kind of hard. I don't get everything I want to eat, uh, and, and I miss my warm baths and things like that. But he doesn't. He says, what's really happened to me has served to advance the gospel. That's the prism through which he understands and views his circumstance. Has served to advance the gospel so that the whole imperial guard has come to know this gospel. That my imprisonment is also for Christ. And then he says, yeah, so some people are preaching and they're preaching with the wrong motives and some people are preaching with the right motives, but what I'm really thrilled about is that Christ's name is being proclaimed. That Christ's name is being exalted. That this, this hope for the world is being lifted up. So that's what he's saying in his first report. Yeah, circumstances might be challenging, but Paul's perspective is that the gospel is going forward. And he says, so I rejoice in what has gone on. I'm rejoicing. And then he turns in the second half of verse 18 and says, yes, and I will rejoice. I'm going to continue rejoicing. As he looks ahead to this, this is kind of his second report. Oh, and by the way, I've got a trial coming. I'm going to be put on trial, and I don't know if I'm going to live or if I'm going to die. Not really something we look forward to, probably. Not something that you would feel really excited about in your life. But he says, yes, and I will rejoice. I will rejoice, he says. The Roman judgment is coming. Aren't you afraid, Paul? Aren't you concerned? Aren't you worried that your whole ministry is going to end and that they might take your life away from you? You can kind of hear these questions maybe even bouncing around in his own mind as he's writing this letter. But he says, I'm confident that Christ now is always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, whether I live or whether I die. I'm confident of this, that Christ will be honored in my body. He goes back in a sense to that prayer for assurance or that statement of assurance in verse 6, that, um, that faithful is he who called you, or I'm sure of this, the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He goes back to this assurance in his own life and says that I ha- he has confidence that this situation that he's in, that he's about to be brought into this, this, this trial, this court trial for his life, will turn out, what does he say, for his deliverance. Now, how do you understand his deliverance? He says in the next verse that he might live or he might die. He doesn't know what's going to happen in terms of the outcome. But he says deliverance. This is a word that's pointing to the future. This is a word that's pointing to the final day. This is a word that's pointing to the day when Christ will return. And what Paul is saying is that in this trial that I'm in right now, in in going before the, the, the Roman courts, I'm confident that with full courage, he says, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. And because of that, I'm confident that this situation, whatever the temporal outcome may be, will turn out for my deliverance on that final day. He's actually quoting from Job here, Job 13, verse 16, the exact same language um, he's using here in this text. And Job is basically saying, oh, he's got all these, you know, Job, Job's got all these problems. He's suffering, just like Paul is suffering. And his, his godly Christian friends come to him and say, Job, if you were really holy, if you were really righteous, this wouldn't be happening to you. You're, you're hiding something from God. And Job says, this situation will turn out for my deliverance. And Paul's echoing that here. Job's saying, no, I've been faithful. I've been walking. I've been valuing God above everything else in my life. And these circumstances don't determine my standing on that final day. And Paul is saying the same thing, that I'll be delivered. I won't be ashamed, he says. He won't be ashamed. He believes that God will grant to him this confidence. And how does it happen in verse 19? 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, this happens by the power of God at work in and through Paul, the Spirit of of Christ Jesus, the divine empowerment that God gives to the heart of, of his people. He says, through this and through your prayers, and prayers are what? We've talked about this before. Prayers are basically saying, God, I can't, but you can. They're an opportunity for us as human beings to to cry out to God, to to work and to exhibit his power and his grace in a powerful way in our lives. So he says, through your prayers and through the Spirit, through the power of God, I'm confident of this, that I'll stand firm in the day of my trial and Christ will be honored, made great, glorified is what that word means, in my body. This is what he says. So maybe not the most like common report that you might expect of somebody's situations and circumstances. How is it that Paul is able to make these kinds of claims? How is it that he's able to have this kind of perspective on his life and his circumstances? And we get that answer, really, in verse 21, the verse that probably most of you know in many ways by heart, even if you don't know that it's from Philippians 1. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is Paul saying something very significant and very deep. This is Paul saying, all that I am, all that I've ever been, all that I will be, all of my living, all of my, my, my pain, all of my sorrow, all of my joy, all of my studying, all of my working, all of my laboring for the gospel, all of me is yours. Jesus. All of me is yours. For to me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ, he says. All that I have, all that I am, all that I will be belongs to you. You are the supreme value in my life, comparing to no one and to nothing else. For to me, to live is Christ. He says this in other places in his letters. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Colossians 3, for, your, for, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So Christ is my life. So much so that what? What's the second half of the verse? And to die is gain. How do you feel about dying? I mean that seriously. Have you confronted your own mortality recently? Paul's sitting in a Roman prison cell, awaiting trial from the Roman courts. He's sitting as a prisoner. He's sitting as one who, who, who's not exactly in a popular or a, a position with a lot of leverage in his life. He's confronting, in many ways, his own mortality and the reality of his own death. And what does he say about death? To die is gain. That is, Jesus, you are such an amazing treasure to me. You are worth far more to me than the love of these churches that you've called me to plant, than the love of this ministry that you've entrusted to me, than the, no, I'm going to go beyond Paul, than the love of my wife, than the love of my children, than the, 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 the vocation that you've given to me, than my studies, than my work. You are worth so much more to me than these things. That in my perspective, in Christ, to die is gain. Why is it gain? This is not a morbid thought. This isn't a thought towards suicide. It's gain because he says, as he goes on, that he says, 
if uh, I'm hard-pressed between the two, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. That's why it's gain, because the one who he has given his life to, the one that he is he's consumed by, that when he passes through death, he finds himself with Christ in a full and complete way, whereas in this world, it's, it's through, a, uh, through a glass dimly, as he says in 1 Corinthians 13. So that to die for him is gain, actually gain, that he would gain something from this death. It's not that he's wishing to die, but he's longing for more of Jesus. He's, he's expressing in this short little phrase that, that Jesus is worth so much to him that he would give everything else up that he has in his life, everything that God has given to him, everything that's good, so that he could gain more of Jesus. And I'll go on and say this in a different way in a couple chapters. More than he loves anything else, he loves Jesus. This is the, the Jesus, as we talked about last week, who has loved him. How does one feel this way about Jesus? Only as we come to see how much he loves us. We sang the songs, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Which the Prince of Glory Died. Um, Jesus pours out his love for us on the cross. And Paul knows this deeply in his heart, in such a way that it's not just a trite saying, Jesus died for me. But this defines his life, and it defines his perspective, and it changes everything about the way he views what he's going through in his life that he's facing. Look at how it changes his perspective on, on prison, on troublemakers, on the trial that is to come. It's not that, and I don't want to give the impression of Paul here that he rejoices in the midst of all these things, and some because there's a dehumanizing way you could hear these things, right? The kind of happy, clappy Christian guy, you know, like, Praise the Lord. And just kind of always going through life like that and something bad happens and no, it's, it's going to put on the happy face. That's not what Paul is endorsing here. In fact, there are other places where we see Paul, like in 2 Corinthians, where we see the depth of his trial, the depth of his struggle, the depth of his humanity in many ways. Where he says, you know, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He says in 2 Corinthians 1. Or in 2 Corinthians 7, he says that we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us. Paul knew what it was to be in downcast in despair. He knew what it was to struggle and to suffer. He had the thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was, but he asked God to remove and he didn't. So he knew both suffering for the sake of the gospel in his missionary endeavors which is what we're reading about here. And he knew suffering because of his participation in the fallen creation, because of his common uh, identity as a human being in a broken and fallen world. So I don't want to paint an unrealistic picture of Paul, but he's saying here as he's confronting his own end that he has a depth of certainty in the love of Christ for him and in the, the surpassing value of Jesus above all else. He has a depth of certainty that he writes about in Romans 8, that neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor principalities nor powers nor, nor famines nor nakedness nor danger nor sword, I'm paraphrasing, nor anything could separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the kind of certainty that he's demonstrating here. That's the kind of love that he's experienced from Jesus in his life. That's the kind of love that he's reciprocating to Jesus through these circumstances and that we're seeing unveiled to us here in this letter as he opens these reports about what's going on in his life. 
It is even evidenced at the end of this text that we've read in his desire to forego what he says is far better, which he says is to die. He says, that's far better for me because I would be with my Lord. I would have him in full. But he says, I'm convinced that it's necessary for me to stick around and, and have fruitful labor among you, Philippians. He's saying, I'm convinced that I'm called to forego what is better for me that I might be of, of service to you. This is the model that he'll then go on to present in chapter 2 of Christ laying down what was good for him to bless and to serve others. This is how much Christ means to him, is that he would forego what is best, forego what is in his greatest interest, and say that he's willing to go where Christ would take him, to whatever lengths. So my question to you is this, if you're feeling a little bit alienated from Paul at the moment, um, if you're thinking, well, that's really great for an apostle that had a Damascus Road experience. What about me? I'm living in Boston in the 21st century. I'm facing some stru struggles and some trials in my life. How do I relate to this guy? I was kind of wrestling through that as I was working on this text this week. How, how do we relate to somebody like this who understands his life in this kind of incredibly Christ-centered way? How do I get, how do I understand it? How do we relate to a radical? Because our world is really more this. I think this is pretty accurate. For to me, to live is really hard, and to die is inevitable. Seriously, is that not the way that we often experience our life? Or in a more cynical sense, for to me, to live is me, and to die is loss. Because then me is no more, and I lose everything. Or even in a more kind of nuanced way for some of us. To, for to me, to live is Jesus helping me. And to die is, is, is a bummer. You know? like, I mean, you can kind of come out, you keep filling in your scenarios here. But that's the world that we live in. That's the world that we live in. How do I relate to this guy who's saying that he's in prison? Who's saying that he has Christian brothers and sisters trying to make his life more difficult? And who's saying that he's facing a Roman trial and doesn't know if he's going to live or die? And it all the while is saying, I rejoice. In this I rejoice. And yes, I will continue to rejoice in my life. There's nothing slowing him down. There's nothing grabbing him, it doesn't seem, as he writes in, like this. And I want to say this, that what is true for Paul is true for me. What is true for Paul is true for you, if you follow Jesus. There's no gap. There's no gap. And I want to say it because of this. What does Jesus say in Luke 14? He says, No one can be, to, can, can be my disciple unless he hates his father and mother, uh, his wife and children, uh, everybody else that is dear to him, and yes, even his own life. Now, he's using an obviously kind of hyperbole there. He's not calling us to hate our family. But what he's saying is that in order to be my disciple, in order to be my disciple, it's going to require absolutely all of your allegiance. You love me more than you love the things that are dearest to you. That's what it means to be my disciple. And then what Paul has said about having died. So this is the point, that for every one of us who proclaims Jesus as Lord in our lives, for every one of us who says this, or if you're here just kind of wondering if you should, wondering if this is really worthwhile, wondering if this is really true, this is true for you as well. Everyone who says that Jesus is Lord, for everyone in that category, something true and real has happened in your life. You've died. You've died. 
Not just kind of in pretend, not just kind of tritely, but really, you have died with Christ. And we, what we look at is the sacrament of baptism that signifies this, that you are united with Christ and buried with Him and taken down under the waters, buried with Him. Your life ends. You have died. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China in the 19th century, who was responsible for enormous numbers of conversions in China, when asked at the end of his life, why did God use you? Sorry, did I almost burn myself? Sorry. Um, Jesus said he baptized us by the Spirit and by fire, right? Um, Hudson Taylor said this, why did God choose to use you? He said, because I was low enough and because I died a long time ago. He gave up everything in his life to go to China to serve Jesus, to give his life for Jesus. Because he knew this basic gospel reality that you cannot claim Jesus as your Savior and not know and have had, have a, had a real thing happen to you of your death. You have died. And you've been raised with Christ to new life. So that it is true that for to you, to live is Christ. It's true. It's not just a pretend thing. It's not just a trite thing. It's really true for you to live as Christ. And because Christ is now your life, to die for you is gain. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but who for him who for their sake died and was raised. The focus isn't anymore on me. It's not on me. It's not on my needs. It's not on my hurts. It's not on my grief. It's not on my sorrows. It's not on my circumstances. It's not on my studies. It's not on my work. It's not on my children. Not ultimately. The focus is now on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I'm looking to Him. I'm seeing Him. I'm clinging to Him. It's not on my demand for my needs to be met now. It's on Jesus. It's on Jesus. And because it's on Jesus, and because Jesus has loved me, I am secure. All of those things that plague us day in and day out, all of those things that make us laugh when we say to live is really hard, all of those things, have a secondary kind of importance in light of Jesus. Jesus now is our focus and we're fixed on him and his glory. We're fixed on him and his glory. And it's only this kind of security in the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's only this kind of depth of knowledge in the love of God in Christ Jesus that can lead me, therefore, to being alive. This is the only way to live. This is not a statement about, about just kind of fanatical, radical, weird, crazy people called Christians. This is a statement about what it means to be truly and fully human. It's to, to, to live as Christ, to know Christ, to love Christ, to have everything of your life shaped by Christ, to come fully alive. And then, instead of, instead of hating father and mother, you'll be the best child there was. You'll be the most most engaged and active husband and father and, and son or daughter and student and, and artist and business person and fill in the blank. You'll be the most engaged and active and alive that you could ever be because of this reality that has gripped your heart and changed you forever. 
And so all of our circumstances as the people of God now become what? Not opportunities for griping and complaining and being frustrated and being distracted, but opportunities for what? They become vehicles through which the glory of Christ can shine ever more brightly in the world today. And that's what Paul exhibits here as an example to the Philippians and to us is through the most dire of circumstances that Christ is being glorified. Christ is being magnified. And I mean this in sincerity, in reality. This means in your studies. This means in your relationship with your wife or your husband. This means in your, in, in your relationship with one another. That all of these circumstances that God has put you in are now vehicles through which the glory of Christ can be made more manifest and full in the world today. All of your suffering, all of your pain, all of your joy, all of your sorrow. And I'm not saying you can go out and be a happy, clappy Jesus follower. I don't mean that at all. Many of you are here and struggling, and I know, and I, and I mourn with those who are mourning. But I'm saying that, that together, in this life, we have got this opportunity in front of us. And what happens when we walk in this way, when we walk in the reality of the depth of Christ's love for us? Look at verse 14. This is where I want to close. Paul says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Going to verse 20, when we with full courage now as always make it our ambition that Christ will be honored in our bodies, in our whole lives, in our whole persons, whether we live or whether we die when we walk in full courage, when we spur one another on in this way, what happens, what happens to the family of God? They're made more bold. They're made more courageous. They're made more engaged in the proclamation of Jesus. To speak the word without fear, the word there is literally daring. They were going to daringly speak without fear this word in associating with a prisoner under the Roman courts and thereby risking their very lives. This was the call. This was what Paul's courageous example had led to others around him to do, was to engage more radically and more fully. So when one man or one woman woman understands the depth of the love of Jesus on their behalf, understands this key core principle that for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain, and gets ignited by this, not by a candle, but ignited by this, by the Spirit, it's a contagious thing. There's a contagious kind of courage in the heart of the people of God that when one of us stands and takes a bold claim for Christ in every circumstance gives glory to Jesus through our lives, that others are encouraged to join in that witness boldly, with risk and daringly. And Christ is glorified. And I want to say that many of you I know are new here tonight, but that those of us who have been a part of this community for a while at Church of the Cross have this unique opportunity sitting in front of us right now. To live is Christ and to die is gain. To walk in the fullness of assurance of Christ's love in such a way that we, through every circumstance, would have it our concern and our ambition that Christ be glorified in our bodies whether we live or whether we die. And that as we do, that God will raise up around us others who will take with full courage this call to bear witness to Christ in every circumstance of their lives. And that this call shapes our day in and day out thinking about our lives. It's not for to me to live is really hard. 
but it's for to me to live as Christ, to live as Christ, and that we might walk fully in courage and faith in the love of God in Christ Jesus, and therefore be a part of spurring one another on to this kind of love. This is what Paul reveals of his own heart and perspective, and Paul holds himself up as an example to the flock. I pray that he would be to us, that for us to live might be Christ in him alone, and that we would not fear anything that might come in light of that. Amen.